So I'm going through my next issue subscription on my uh, iPad, and I come across this great article in Rolling Stone, David Letterman, happy at last, because I'm wondering why the guy is retiring. You know, he's kind of closed-lipped about this stuff. And interestingly enough, he tells about when he stopped being miserable, he knew it was time to quit, which is kind of around the time my career failed in uh, the 80s. When I started to be happy about my life, suddenly I couldn't write songs about teen angst anymore. So I totally identify with the guy. But this is the kind of stuff you find on Next Issue. It's great. As a user of Next Issue, you get more into your interests, your personal interests. They seek out the authorities on them, like Esquire, Vogue, Sports Illustrated, Wired Magazine. There's so many magazines we've all come to trust available to you. I get all the stories, news, and photos from the most relied upon sources. I have instant, unlimited access to the world's top magazine titles right there on my tablet and smartphone, whenever I want them. I can get sports, entertainment, fashion, news, travel, any other subject or information I want. And my reading experience is enriched through exclusive videos, slideshows, and web experiences. So it's not like reading a traditional magazine. It's interactive. It's awesome. Next issue has the top titles for all your interests. Are you into sports? Well, whatever you want is there. ESPN, the magazine, Sports Illustrated, Backpacker, Ski, Surfer, plenty more. How about fashion? There's Allure, Vogue, Elle, Cosmo, and 19 other titles. Are you interested in entertainment like me? Well, Next Issue has dozens of them, from People to Rolling Stone to U.S. Weekly. And there are plenty of other top-notch reads like National Geographic, Consumer Reports, and Food and Wine, if you're into that. Next Issue delivers all the content, everything that's in the print editions on the same day it hits the newsstand. So no delayed stuff or whatever. When they're putting it on the stands, you're getting it on your iPhone or iPad or whatever you're using. And there's lots of interactive features, like I said, videos and photos. You have access to the most popular and trusted magazines anywhere on your tablet or phone. Your favorites can be enjoyed in the moment or downloaded to be read offline later. It's just like a podcast. You get the information when you need it, when you want it, without carrying around a ton of magazines. And it's so easy to search the entire catalog and find exercise tips, trip ideas, top stories, whatever. You can be specific in what you're looking for, and it'll give it to you. Bottom line. Next issue is an incredible value. One subscription gets you so many magazines for as little as $10 per month. You hear that? $10 a month. And you can use your subscription on up to five devices, so it's easy to share with others. Listen, you can get a free 30-day trial at nextissue.com slash Snyder now and read up way up on all your interests. That's nextissue.com slash Snyder. Remember, my last name is a proper noun. not an, It's an adjective, not a proper noun. It's S-N-I-D-E-R. That's nextissue.com slash Snyder. Check it out. Let's play.
Happy 4th of July week, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Um, you know, I'm overseas currently. I'm actually sitting in a hotel room in uh, Carvana. Carvana? Yeah, Carvana, Bulgaria, where um, my band, uh, Twisted Sister, obviously played a show last night. Um, a ravenous rock audience. Incredible. When we come over here, the response, the reaction. It saddens me that we were never able to get over here during the day because during the day uh, it was, you know, pre Glasnaus. Uh, for those who remember what that is, where the wall came tumbling down, uh, the Soviet Union was disbanded, and people didn't tour over in uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland and places like that. They're all part of, uh, they're behind the Iron Curtain. Unless you were the Scorpions, no one went back there. But being over here, being overseas uh, on the during the Fourth of July week, uh, is it it, uh, it always makes you appreciate how special the holiday is. Because being when you're home, everybody's in celebration mode and looking forward to the week and. Uh, you know, and, and it starts early, it ends late, uh, and you sort of take it for granted. But when you go overseas and there's not a mention or acknowledgement, any recognition at all of one of the most significant holidays for Americans, for people from the United States, that is, not North Americans, uh, you know, uh, you realize how, uh, what's the word I'm looking, individualized, well, you know, it's, it's our country's holiday. Uh, you travel around the world. Other countries celebrate Christmas. Other countries celebrate Halloween. Uh, other countries celebrate, you know, religious holidays are celebrated throughout the world. Um, but when it comes to Thanksgiving, it comes to the 4th of July, these are very specific holidays specifically for our country, the United States. And uh, you feel like you're missing out on something when you know back home there's a celebration going on. And over here, there won't be so, as much as a, a firecracker go off. So with that in mind, I'm going to try something very, uh, well, I don't say it's unique because it's inspired by another Radio Air personality who I'll talk about in a second. But I'm going, I wrote, a few years ago, I wrote a short story about, uh, about the 4th of July in the 60s and 70s when I was a kid growing up. Because I'm old! You know, uh, and, um, and I've, I've posted it, it hasn't been published but I've put it on my website and uh, I've shared it with people every uh, every 4th of July. Uh, it's a fictional story, but it's very, it's a period piece and it captures a certain time uh, and, and the spirit of, of the holiday when I was growing up. And uh, I thought that in honor of the 4th of July this year, I would read you that short story. That's right. It's story time on Snyder Comments. Uh, you know, um, I know that seems a little weird. Hopefully it, uh, it works. Maybe it won't. My inspiration comes from an air personality that I grew up with by the name of Gene Shepard. 
Now, I'm hoping you guys hope that there's a handful of you out there going, I know Gene Shepard. Um, and, but the majority of you do not know Gene Shepard, and you should know Gene Shepard, although you do know Gene Shepard, and I'll explain just how you know Gene Shepard in a minute. Um, but he had a syndicated, nationally syndicated, nighttime radio show um, that was on for 45 minutes of talk radio a night um, from like the 50s. Well, the length of time in the show ranged. I mean, it was an hour at some point. But when I was tuning in in the 70s and 60s, it was 45 minutes. Um, And he uh, uh, would talk each night, late night radio talk show. Um, He'd pontificate, tell stories, expound on things that were on his mind. Um, And uh, he was also a writer. He wrote a number, uh, a lot of short stories for magazines that wound up being published in books, which is going to lead in in a couple of seconds to how you all know Gene Shepard. And he was such a huge influence, had such uh, an effect on me. Um, The the biggest thing, I think, uh, besides um, my sarcastic, my sense of sarcasm, which Gene was very sarcastic, um, as Gene J E. A N like a like a woman's gene shepherd S H E I think it's P H A R D, um, he, uh, but he a number of people I, I run into people if you meet someone who know, who's a Gene Shepherd fan, um, you like it's a media connection, a big Gene Shepherd fan Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry has said that he completely, uh, basically defined Jerry's uh, sense of comedy. Jerry credits to Gene Shepard. Um, John Ratzenberger. I was did a commercial uh, a couple of years ago, Super Bowl commercial with John Ratzenberger, and John's there dressed as Cliffy from Cheers, and I'm dressed as you know my twisted sister costume. And it was an '80s retro theme. You remember that that uh, that um, uh, that commercial for the Super Bowl, which was like one of the best commercials that year for the Super Bowl, and subsequently Radio Shack. Too little, too late, you know, file for bankruptcy. Um, so Ratzenberger and I are sitting on the set, and, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're talking, and it's kind of formal. And somehow, Gene Shepard's name comes out. And immediately, it's like electricity. The two of us are like, whoa, you're a night person? Because that's what they call Gene Shepard's fans, night people. And, yeah, man, yeah. Oh my. He, and, you know, and as Gene Shepard helped to find my attitude, which affected my music. Ratzenberger says that Gene Shepard's the reason why he dropped out of school and pursued acting. So, I mean, so, it, it, you know, uh, another person, um, I'm getting his name now, from uh, Asia. Uh, the, the, you know, these are all old people. Yeah, I know, they're their own. Um, but worth looking into. And as far as radio goes, I, all I really listen to is um, old Gene Shepard uh, MP3s. There are hundreds and hundreds of available. If you're curious of what who he was and what he was like, you can look for his book of short stories, and his short story books are insanely funny. Uh, you can listen to some of his po- some of his podcasts, some of his MP3s. It's like listening to podcasts. It'll give him, give him a few, okay? Because um, you know he'll, he'll go from story, excuse me, storytelling to. Um, just you know, ranting and uh, raving about this or that, uh, rarely political, or or you know, uh, or, or you know, he, he, but 
Uh, but but he has very intellectual, very strong insights into things. And as I listen back to his 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 uh, shows, I'm amazed at how spot on he was. Except for the Beatles, uh, he thought they were gonna they were like a, a, a passing fad. It, you know, the Beatles he would call them. And as a matter of fact, he actually a Playboy magazine sent him on tour with the Beatles in their I mean like 1965. So he like traveled with the Beatles. He wrote an article on it, and it's, it's amazingly insightful what he experienced being in that microcosm, in the center of the storm of the Beatles during during that Beatlemania period. Um, so, how do you guys know him? You know him because he wrote a Christmas story, that perennial holiday favorite. He wrote the screenplay based on a series of short stories from a book called um, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. It's a combination of a whole bunch of his, uh, a whole bunch of his um, uh, short stories. May turn, he turned into a screenplay, and um, his voice is the narrator. So when you think of the narrator, of the, the tonality of the narrator of A Christmas Story, that's Gene Shepard. And long before the movie came out, and by the way, he was very sarcastic and and uh, and almost like a uh, a negative, almost a negative worldview. Uh, he and his take on Christmas, if you look between, the, it's a kind of a dark take with the kid having cursing and beating up uh, Scott Farkas and you know, dropping the F-bomb with his dad and the way the kids treated each other and, and the way they talked, you know, and, and the idea of wanting something and, and, and everybody telling you you can't have it. And um, he would probably be mortified to see what a heartwarming uh, movie holiday favorite his film has become, yeah, even though, because it wasn't that big when it first came out, but it's grown, you know, in stature over the years. And he's, he passed away a long time ago. Uh, but Gene, before the movie, he used to read uh, the story about the Red Rider BB gun uh, uh, each Christmas Eve on his radio show. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it was uh, an annual thing with Gene, and uh, as an audience, we loved it. Um, some of us had read the book, others had not, but the, the story itself captured something. And um, although it seemed autobiographical, uh, he would swear, his name was Gene, not Ralphie, and he would swear that it was complete fiction, although none of us would believe that. And uh, because it was just too heartfelt and too inside. And, uh, you know, and but he swear that this is just, you know, this is just a fictional story. Don't read anything more than a fictional story in there. But every holidays, every Christmas, he would read it. So I thought that I would give a shot to reading my story, my short story that I wrote uh, about the holidays uh, to you this Fourth of July week, all right. So I'm gonna, uh, so I'm gonna take a break here for a minute. Come back and uh, and get into it and read you and the Rockets' red glare, a short story by yours truly, D. Snyder. So stick around.
continuing on. Welcome back to Snyder Comments. Uh, so here we go. I don't know how long this story is. Hopefully it fits within to the format. If not, I've got plenty of other stuff to talk to you about. Uh, so happy 4th of July to all of you. This is And the Rockets' Red Glare. The summer of 1967, when I graduated from elementary school, was memorable even without the great battle of Ardmore Road to highlight it. I was 12 years old and still walking tall for being one of the big kids in school and not yet aware of just how little I would become again when I started junior high. Being almost a teenager, my parents had finally started to let me run my own life. As long as I did my chores and was home exactly at 5 o'clock for dinner each night, the world, make that the neighborhood, was pretty much mine. I had a paper route, which meant I always had a couple of bucks in my pocket. So between that, my newfound freedom, and my trusty bicycle, I had finally arrived. At what, I wasn't exactly sure, but I felt like I was there. Not only were my parents treating me different, but other adults were treating me different. And the morning after it happened, even the authorities treated me different. It didn't matter that I wasn't even shaving yet. I was the man. Now, the Great Battle of Ardmore Road is the stuff of legend, and as the years go by with every retelling, people question the exactness of my recollections. To be honest, there are times even I would doubt my own memory of that fateful 4th of July if it wasn't for all the documentation to back it up. Memories can change, but police reports never lie. As long as I can remember, the Murphys and the Niedermans had battled for July 4th supremacy. Living directly across the street from the two warring clans gave me a bird's-eye view of their annual face-off. My family lived dead at the end of the block. Picture a T-shaped intersection, if you will. The Niedermans lived diagonally across from us to the right, and the Murphys' house occupied the opposite corner. This gave my family and me a front-row seat for their final epic showdown. My father says that at first the families were like any other on the block, each year having Independence Day celebrations, complete with the prerequisite burgers, hot dogs, beer, soda, slices of watermelon, aunts, uncles, cousins, a couple of grandparents sitting on folding chairs, and a few fireworks. As the years passed, each of the family's displays grew and the competition fostered between them escalated into a Hatfields and McCoys type feud. Every fourth, both the Murphys and the Niedermans would raise the bar with their pyrotechnic displays, methodically trying to outdo their rival. Other families in the neighborhood didn't even bother to shoot off their own fireworks or even go downtown for the annual fire department display. There was just no way anyone could compete with the Murphys and Niedermans Armageddon-like shows. Now, for a certified fireworks junkie like myself, read an average kid, the anticipation of this annual orgy of explosives started the minute the calendar page was flipped to June and the reality that summer vacation was truly in sight began to sit in. While at the time the appeal of fireworks was purely a gut-level thing, they were bright, loud, colorful, forbidden, and potentially dangerous, I now see how they mirror the extremes of human passion. From the joyous and most raucous highs to potentially the most terrifying lows, pyrotechnics exemplify the, the chaotic range of emotion only human beings are capable of experiencing, and viewing them brings it out in all of us. Leading up to the big day, every kid in the neighborhood would speculate intensely about what might be in store. But no matter how overblown our imaginations got, no matter how apocalyptically perverse our visions became, rarely did they exceed what was presented on the night. 
Now, 11 months out of the year, the Murphys and Niederman children were just like the rest of us, thoroughly involved with all the other street urchins in the neighborhood doings, pretty average, stupid stuff, running around, getting dirty, scratching, you know, being kids. Dan Murphy was in my class, and we hung out and played ball after school a lot. Cynthia Niederman was a year younger than me and beautiful. I had a major crush on her, but sixth graders didn't even think of liking fifth graders. Apparently, they had cooties. Come June, both the Niederman and Murphy kids would start to distance themselves from the rest of us, becoming completely closed-mouthed about what their respective families were planning for the fourth. No amount of pumping or trickery could get them to divulge what they did or did not know. They had been trained early and well by their parents not to disclose a thing for fear of their competitor absconding with their concepts. And from humble beginnings, each of the family's bacchanalian presentations had grown to epic proportions. The Murphys and Niederman's fireworks display were way more than just a bunch of colorful explosions. Every year, each of the families would come up with elaborate themes for their presentations, complete with props and sets, even costumes to help their vision. While war themes were always popular with the competitors, some years the concepts were more ethereal, immortalizing things like birth and springtime. Other years the families might enact Broadway shows, usually musicals, and still others went to far more spiritual concepts like love or the ill-fated year the Murphys chose death. Fortunately for them, that was the same year the Niedermans chose the Great Depression as their theme, so it was pretty much a cheerless wash. When the fourth would finally, and for a kid painfully slowly arrive, neighboring families and the surrounding blocks as well would line the streets, not just to see the massive fireworks display that night, but to watch the elaborate preparations during the day. Local families would have Fourth of July parties completely centered on the Murphys and Niederman shows. Where was the invited guest who would pass up a chance to attend one of these satellite soirees? The Murphys and Niedermans' annual fireworks extravaganza was the hottest ticket in town. Each fourth, the physical construction of the display sets would start early. Pieces were often prefabricated to save precious building time. The suspense amongst the onlookers would grow in direct proportion to the complexity of, to the complexity of the creations being built, a sort of foreplay to the coming show. Sometimes the orgasmic squeals of delight were so loud, people would run out of their homes just to see the erection that elicit, that had elicited such an extreme reaction. Puns fully intended. Surprisingly, with all the fanfare and excitement centered on their homes, the Murphys and Niedermann seemed to derive little pleasure from the experience themselves. What started out as enthusiastic, joyful holiday festivities had, due to the fierce competition, turned into intense, laborious efforts filled with arguing, aggravation, and sometimes even tears amongst the family members. Suspicious glances and dirty looks were constantly being ex exchanged between the competing tribes. To the Murphys and the Niedermans, this had nothing to do with having a good time or the celebration of our nation's birth, and everything to do with being the crowd favorite and besting their rival. Now in the 60s, at least in my neighborhood, air conditioning was a rare commodity. In the dead of summer, if you wanted air conditioning, you either stood in front of the refrigerator with the door open, move guaranteed to get you a beating if your dad or mom caught you, hung out in the frozen food section of the supermarket, or you went into town and saw a movie. Movie theaters were the one place that always had air conditioning. Why else would anybody pay to go inside a windowless and back then smoke-filled room in the heat? 
Since standing in front of the open fridge could be hazardous to your health, hanging out in the supermarket looks suspicious, and going to the movies was for special occasions, or when your dad and mom couldn't stand the heat anymore, summertime was just one long sweat with various subtle perspiration level changes throughout the day and night. Each morning when the sun came blasting through the windows, quickly turning your home's upstairs dormer room into an inferno, you woke up gasping for air in a puddle of your own sweat. I'm pretty sure dormer is French for roasting in the summer, freezing in the winter. You then spend the day outside sweating and doing anything you could to get out of the heat and cool off for the, in the slightest way. Any kid who had a pool was the most popular kid in the neighborhood. No matter how big a loser they might be the rest of the year, We had a pool, the water was greenish, tepid, and questionably sanitary, but nobody ever complained. When the sun finally did go down, lowering the mean temperature all of five degrees, you went back into your sweat box of a house, laid on the couch or carpet, sweating, and watched TV. When your parents sent you to bed so they could sweat alone, you tossed and turned until you finally fell asleep in the suffocating heat. Then you'd wake up the next morning gasping for air like a beach flounder and start the whole nightmare over again. This went on pretty much from July 1st through Labor Day weekend, one long, brutally sweaty block of time. Why do we like summer again? The summer of the GB of AR was particularly hot. A heat wave hit early and stayed long. It seemed like winter ran right into summer after a brief, intense rainy season. This made all the greening, this made all the greenery more lush than usual, which is probably a good thing when you consider all the battle-related fires. But I'm getting ahead of myself. As the big weekend approached, the weather reports predicted that this year's Fourth of July celebration was going to be the hottest on record. And when that morning finally broke, it looked like, unfortunately for once, the weathermen were going to be right. I was awoken early that morning in a particularly large pool of sweat to the sound of firecrackers being set off by overanxious merrymakers getting a head start on the day's festivities. The extreme humidity made the detonation sound like muffled thuds, and the cicadas in the trees were already screaming for whatever it is they scream for. But nothing could lessen my enthusiasm for the day and night ahead. This was the defining event of each summer, and something told me that this year's was going to be the mother of them all. As usual, families had already begun to lay claim to their piece of the street, dragging lawn chairs, chaise lounges, coolers, umbrellas, and other accoutrements de summer out to secure their piece of asphalt real estate. In my neighborhood, Independence Day was a big deal. Some family setups were so elaborate they would run electric and water, extension cords and hoses, out to their spot. Due to our prime viewing location, my family didn't have to concern ourselves with such mundane efforts. We just brought everything out onto our front porch. It was the only time of year that we were the focused envy of all of our neighbors and loathed universally. It felt pretty good. The occasional scuffle was known to break out during some of the territorial negotiations. Someone would try to monopolize more than their fair share of the street, or worse, or worse, move someone else's things to make room for their own. This would result in a yelling match and once in a while some pushing and shoving. Not really surprising for an event of this magnitude. But that year, there seemed to be more scuffles than usual. There was even a fist fight. If a few wildly thrown punches that all missed their mark before the combatants were pulled apart can even be called that. 
Maybe the tropical heat brought it on, but tempers were shorter and nerves were unusually frayed. The sounds of sirens somewhere in our town, usually a welcome accompaniment to the revelries, seemed closer than usual that year and far more ominous. As it would turn out, that 4th of July would be a less than shining moment for our community. Once people had set up their spots, they flocked to the street in front of their rivals' homes to get a closer look at the preparations. Tensions were higher than ever between the Murphys and the Niedermans, and amongst the family members themselves. Did I mention it was hot? There had never been any love lost between the two clans, but their animosity was reaching new heights of antagonism, and their fans loved it. You see, there were Murphy fans and Niederman fans, each devoted to the family they supported and capable of justifying their allegiance with detailed points of reference from years past, defending their undying belief that their side put on the best show. Many others, like myself, didn't choose a side, cheering both on equally, never really wanting there to be a clear winner. We felt the thrill was in the competition, and it would be diminished if any one of the families was to stand clearly above the other. As that day drew on, the crowd increased, the temperature and the humidity continued to rise, and the Murphys and Niedermans' constructions grew. One problem quickly became evident. Both families had chosen to present the same theme, the War of 1812. Even more unsettling, both presentations mirrored each other, from their plywood facades of the USS Constitution to their maps of the Northern Territories in Canada, to their cutouts of American, British, and French soldiers and Indians. Though not exact, the Murphys and the Niedermans' displays were eerily similar. And then there were the cannons. Each house had a battery of mock cannons, their barrels pointed high into the sky in anticipation of the night's festivities. They couldn't have been more alike if the two families had worked on their displays together. Obviously, neither family was pleased about this happenstance. Their resentment of each other was palpable. A war of words between the Murphys and Niedermans escalated, and accusations between the family members flew. Each clan was certain that someone in his or her ranks had violated family trust. But to the outside observer, it was fairly clear that it was all just an incredible coincidence. I mean, once you chose the War of 1812 as your theme, what else could you construct but soldiers, Indians, cannons, and the USS Constitution? Any kid who had spent that painful lesson in history class knew it was a given. Besides, while the set design was an important part of the overall presentation, it was all just a facade for the fireworks themselves. Their execution was the real show. Pyrotechnic deployment is a fine art, requiring timing, a sense of drama, style, and finesse. Any amateur can light a fuse and run, but only a true master can properly build a fireworks spectacular and give an audience a rousing audio and visual experience that will ring in their heads and be burned in their retinas for days. In the wrong hands, even the most professional-grade explosives can bore an audience to tears. This was never a concern for the Murphys and Niedermans. If fireworks deployment was awarded belts like in karate, they were 10th degree grandmaster black belts. Another point of much conjecture each year was what surprises might each family have in store. And where the hell did they get the damn fireworks? Fireworks were illegal in our state, yet the feuding families seemed to have a never-ending supply of contraband and no problem with the authorities. On that point... As massive as the yearly fanfare was, there was never any concern about police intervention. Why? Because the area law enforcement agents brought their families to see the shows. Problem solved. And a couple of our neighbors were volunteer firemen who monitored things, so you get the picture. But how the Murphys and the Niedermans managed to come up with new and exotic types of explosive each year was a whole other story. 
Rumors about where they got their supplies abounded, especially amongst the local kids. Most of the stories centered around ancient secret societies, probably ninjas, who were believed to smuggle only the best fireworks from the Far East into the country and deliver the precious black market cargo to the Murphys and Niedermans stealthily under the cover of darkness. My old man, never much of a conspiracy theorist himself, swore that each year he saw some weird guy in an old station wagon make a delivery to both houses. But what did he know? My dad thought banning television in our house for a year was a good idea. And if he were right about the weird guy, why would he be supplying both families? That would definitely be a conflict of interest. Unless he was the one fueling the rivalry between the families. This fireworks man would definitely be a financial beneficiary of their ongoing war. Hmm, maybe he was the puppet master manipulating the whole thing. Nah, I prefer the ninja's theory, and I still believe it. Source issues aside, the bottom line was that each year both families always had a surprise or two up their sleeves. Some spectacular new visual sensation to tantalize the crowd. And this was something else for the multitudes to discuss, debate, and anticipate with Christmas-like delight. Throughout that day, the street fair atmosphere continued. The festivities spilling from front lawns, driveways, and sidewalks out onto the streets. Since it always became impossible for cars to pass anyway, the town would grant a block party permit to the neighborhood, and the street was closed to through traffic. Music played, children ran freely from one house to the other, but of course, not to or from the Murphy or Niederman's houses, and adults were carefree and uninhibited. This was partially due to the massive amounts of alcohol being consumed, but mainly from the general feeling of well-being that came with the day. Off from work and freed of the daily responsibilities of life, the 4th of July brought out the inner child in everyone and a myriad of emotions. Sometime during the late afternoon, the beehive-like activity at the Murphys and Niedermans tapered off. With their work done, each family disappeared from their front yards. This would happen around the same time every year, but that year the quiet seemed eerier, the overall tone of things more ominous. I'm not a psychic, but the whole neighborhood felt it. The party in the streets continued, but it was definitely a bit more subdued. Something beside the heat and humidity was growing. The final few hours of that day, every fourth for that matter, was a non-event, but that year even more so. While there was eating and drinking and general holiday merriment, it was less inspired and more obligatory, like everyone was going through the motions. Some blamed it on the suffocating heat. The thermometer read 102, but that seemed low. No, it was more than that. Everyone was very aware that it was only a few hours until the main event, the official start time each year being 10 p.m., and a nervous tension was beginning to build. Traditionally, those last few hours were a time to do anything that needed to be done that might interfere with the full enjoyment of the night's display. Eating, napping, runs to the store for more food, bathroom breaks, anything and everything was taken care of. The boards had to be well cleared by showtime. The relentless sun had barely dropped below the horizon when many lesser purveyors of the explosive arts in surrounding neighborhoods began to set off their wares. Being amateurs, they had neither the patience nor the timing to wait until full dark for their deployment. But not the Murphys and the Niedermans. Not so much as one firecracker was ignited on their property, or any surrounding properties for that matter. Setting off fireworks in the vicinity of either the master's homes was considered to be a slap in the face of the families. If anybody in the neighborhood wanted to set off their own stash, they went at least several blocks away out of sheer respect. The Murphys and the Niedermans' home was silent, 
dark and brooding. Not a light on. Not a single body could be seen. Their cars weren't even on the streets or in the driveways. To the uninitiated, it would appear that no one was home, possibly away on vacation. But we all know they were there waiting. At exactly 10 o'clock p.m., Greenwich Mean Time, lights blaze forth, illuminating both the Murphys and Niederman's homes and yards dramatically. The crowd cheered. And again, as if on cue, both families emerged from their front doors. True to the year's theme, they were all dressed in period military garb, of course, as American soldiers. Not surprisingly, the soldiers' ranks were determined by age and importance within the families. The children were dressed as privates and up on through the ranks to the visiting grandparents who sported generals' and admirals' uniforms, complete with various medals and pins, reflecting their fictitious accomplishments in battles past. In the early 1800s, clothing function, not comfort, was at a premium, and the heavy wool uniforms were proof. While both families looked resplendent, it was obvious that the extreme heat and humidity was making them anything but comfortable, and their irritation was evident. It wasn't only the fireworks fuses that were short. Now, the actual igniting of the fireworks was always left to the senior members of each household, usually the fathers, but all family members were present throughout the proceedings, if only to pump the crowd up and help build excitement. The implement for detonation varied. The younger members of the clan, old enough to have the responsibility thrust upon them, used punks to set off the smaller stuff. A punk is a dried-out marsh plant of no apparent use that, once ignited, smolders and glows and smells for hours, hence the name. The senior male family members smoked big cigars throughout the proceedings and used them to ignite the larger fuses. The really big explosives were triggered electronically. This was serious business. As was tradition, the entire Murphy and Niederman clans lined up at the edge of their properties and stared down the opposing team, I mean family. It was very much like the showdowns you see in the Western movies. The crowd cheered as they approached their property lines, their faces stone masks, but quickly went dead quiet as the face-off began. Someone in the neighborhood played Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Western soundtrack through a home stereo. I think it was the harmonica man, adding to the tremendous suspense already being felt. The family stood motionless, only their eyes searching, waiting for someone to make the first move. And like the gunslingers of the same spaghetti westerns, but without the lightning flourish of drawing their guns, someone would trigger the first explosive charge, which would be followed almost instantaneously by a counter-explosion, so close in time that it was virtually impossible to tell which family had gone first. That detail would be much debated later, but it didn't matter. The show was on, and all hell was breaking loose. The crowd loved it. The families quickly dispersed onto their properties, taking their positions and doing their assigned jobs. On average, these displays lasted 30 minutes or more, and both families worked like precision drill teams. Failure was not an option. That sweltering, dank summer night, it was particularly intense display. No sooner would one family launch an awe-inspiring barrage of sound and color than the other would counter with an even more sensational salvo. The celebration of our nation's birth was truly done justice that night, until it started to happen. The change was negligible at first, almost imperceptible, but it soon became apparent to all that the trajectories of both families' fireworks were changing. 
Tradition and the implicit instructions on every fireworks package dictates that, with the exception of a few low-level explosives designed purely for ground effect and mainly used as an interim entertainment while bigger stuff is being loaded, all fireworks must be projected at a strict 90-degree angle to the ground, meaning straight into the air. This is for a variety of reasons, including, but not limited to, full deployment of the explosive, maximum viewing potential, and most importantly, safety. This is indisputable. While fireworks may be exciting and beautiful to watch, no one should ever forget that they are direct descendants of actual missiles and explosives used during wartime and present a huge potential threat to life and limb. A number of years ago, a major fireworks producing family had an unfortunate incident on their compound where they stockpile where their stockpile was unintentionally ignited. It literally removed the compound and half of their large extended family from the map. Fun as they may be, these things are definitely not toys. By design, mortars detonate anywhere from 200 to 300 feet in the air, then trail their display back down to Earth, extinguishing safely a good 100 feet or so in the air. Even with that, the shrapnel, paper and plastic, and ashes of each explosive will sprinkle onto the ground, but fully extinguished and harmless. While locals argue to this day over who made the first move, one thing is irrefutable. Subtly at first, incrementally at that, slowly, each side began to take to aim their volleys at each other. Instead of deploying directly over the Murphys and Niederman's homes, the explosions began to occur first out over the street, then slowly but surely over their rivals' homes. Soon the spectators were looking over the Murphys and Niederman's homes to view the result of each launch. And as the trajectories got lower and lower, the shots were now arching over to adjacent blocks. At that point, I'm still not sure most of us understood the significance of what was going on. Viewing this change is a new and exciting twist on tradition and the Murphys and Niederman's way of sharing the love with surrounding neighborhoods. But I clearly remember some of the attending firemen on their radios, fully aware of the slippery slope the contest was on. And still, the combatants continued to adjust their aim. Volley after volley was launched until one particularly intense mortar hit the electric transformer a couple of blocks away. It exploded, caught fire, and plunged the entire neighborhood into darkness. The celebration had taken a bizarre turn for the worse, much worse. Finally, the idea that something was really wrong began to seep in. The crowd's emotion changed from joy to fear in an instant as the very real threat of personal bodily harm became apparent. Yet no one left. We were all frozen in place like deer in the headlights, transfixed by the terrifying beauty of the passion play unraveling before us. Now illuminated only by the fireworks themselves, the battle raged on. A Niederman-launched mortar shell arched over the Murphy's roof and exploded on the roof of a house down the block. The Murphys answered with a shot that caromed off the Niederman's roof, back into the air, then exploded on a car in a neighbor's driveway. Now the gloves were completely off. Any possible claim of innocence or misunderstanding was gone, and the battle began in earnest. Family members scrambled to re-aim the decorative, yet functional, cannons at their opponent, and the Murphys and Niedermans began to aim every volley point-blank at each other. The crowd had no idea what to do. Some ran for the protective cover of their homes. Others cowered in and behind parked cars and overturned picnic tables, still wanting to watch the exchange, yet unwilling to chance possible injury. Still others stood their ground, unwilling to believe what was happening, while others, frozen in shock and fear, were unable to get their bodies to do what they knew they should. 
With the full explosive force of each volley, now hitting each house at close range, broadside, the destructive power of these missiles could truly be appreciated and was definitely being felt. Some of the shells glanced off the combatants' houses and into neighbors' yards or back out into the street before going off. Others deflected off of the houses, back into the air, and exploded close overhead, bathing the area in an eerie cold light and flaming debris. And then there were the volleys that hit their marks, broadside, crashing through the windows of each house. Naturally, the explosive charges went off inside, blowing out whatever other windows might have been in that room with a colorful display, and not surprisingly, setting fire to same. Thankfully, the local firemen were quick to react. The sounds of approaching police and fire trucks could be heard as the firemen and any volunteer brave enough to help out used whatever they could to fight the fires, large and small, all over the neighborhood. Members of the Murphy and Niederman families grabbed garden hoses from the sides of their homes and did what little they could to contain the flames, but neither gave up on their assault. This was a showdown years in the making and payback for the endless imagined indignities each side believed they had suffered at the fuse-lighting hands of the other. The Murphy and Niederman clan snarled, screamed, and howled, while other family members on both sides just laughed maniacally. To simply say that the two families had lost it would be an insult to insane would be an insult to insane people everywhere. There have since been major psychological studies done on this event and the combating family psychoses with inconclusive results. While living at the vortex of each year's 4th of July display had always been the best place to be on that night, it was quite possibly the most dangerous place in the block, other than actually on the property of the warring families. While combatants continued to unload everything they had at each other, many of the broadside glances off the intended homes and either landed in the street directly in front of my family's house, or more dramatically, skittered and skimmed across the street into our yard. Using hoses, buckets of water, blankets, and small household fire extinguishers to put out the flames, my entire family worked frantically to save our home and life possessions, each of us with one eye continually watching the drama unfold. Now, without exception, every great fireworks display has a finale. The symphonic-like crescendo, designed to drive the crowd into a frenzy with its sheer shock and awe. Never has any pyrotechnics extravaganza, no matter how small or unprofessional, intentionally ended with a singular ignition of some low-level explosion. Sure, one might hear a couple of post-finale pops and whizzes from some leftover fireworks discovered after the smoke clears, but they don't count. If you're going to do it right, the best is always safe for last, and plenty of it. The Murphys and Niederman's finales were the stuff of kids' dreams. Very loud and powerfully explosive dreams. Year after year, the bombast of said finales never disappointed. The two families would light up the night sky with everything they had. They would unleash the fury. And that year, as fires raged, the nearby electric transformers sputtered, burned, and sizzled. The authorities scrambled, and people cowered in fear. There was a brief pause that gave everyone a brief moment to hope against hope that maybe the world was behind us. And then the grand finale to beat them all began. I'm going to take a break right here and come back with the end of my story and the rocket's red glare. Stick around. On this week's big podcast with Shaq, is Shaq a helicopter sports dad like Diddy? In a few years, Sharif will have his opportunity to play college ball. Don't tell me that Shaq's going to end up being like Diddy. Going after a coach and going out in handcuffs at practice. You know what? I don't believe 
the media most of the time. Speculation. However, right. if yeah. somebody disrespect my son, I'm going to have to also get arrested. Any form of disrespect was going on, I'd probably have to go see the coach. Oh, man. I'd probably get a, have to go see the coach. You so, get arrested. This show gets canceled. Listen, I, <laughs> I know Ray Donovan. We'll be out in five minutes. The Big Podcast with Shaq. That's me. It's up right now at podcast1.com. That's podcastone.com. Welcome back. Now the finale. I'm in the Rockets' red glare. Where we left off, the fireworks finale of both warring families just started. By this point, the Murphys and Niedermans had gotten a handle on aiming their fireworks in this new, less-than-traditional manner. As opposed to fanning out their display overhead, they were now laser-focusing their launches directly and with malice at their enemy's home. When the last barrages commenced, there was no separation of the explosions into beautiful and striking patterns. There were just two intensely bright, extended flashes of light that outlined every other house, car, or person remaining in the street in dramatic, nuclear holocaust-like fashion. After what felt like the torturous last minutes of a school day, the final firework detonated. No one's completely sure which family should be credited with the last shot, and the explosive cacophony came to an end. Though not one other person in my neighborhood saw what I saw, I will swear on this until the day I die. From my perfect vantage point, I saw two mushroom clouds rise over the Murphys and Niederman's homes in the moonless night sky. When the last of the shrapnel and ash finally fell to the ground, the smoke began to clear, and everyone was sure it was safe. The neighborhood slowly came out of hiding to find the only things left of either of the combatants' homes were two crater-like smoldering holes in the ground. And while there were fires everywhere else, the sheer force of the final blast had sucked the oxygen out of the air over the warring families' former homes, effectively smothering their fires. Later that night, when all the fires were put out and order, if not electricity, was relatively restored, everyone finally went to bed, thinking we had a fair idea as to the extent of the damage. Man, were we wrong. The stark reality of any nighttime activity is never fully realized until the unsympathetic light of morning shines. While the mystery of night, the pale cast of moonlight, and even streetlights can give a somewhat romantic or mysterious feel to just about any nocturnal event, no matter how dire, harsh reality cannot be denied when the sun comes up. The next morning I woke early, not from the heat or excitement or even the annoying sound of the cicadas. As a matter of fact, I was more comfortable than usual because of the nice breeze. Breeze? In my dormer bedroom, I opened my eyes to discover that I now had a better view than ever of the Murphys and Niederman's properties, as the entire corner of my bedroom was missing. My new view was positively panoramic, and then came the cries of shock from my mother and anger from my father and general dismay and disbelief from our neighbors as they all awoke to assess the true damage done by the firefight. I threw my clothes on and ran downstairs to join the rest of the family to see what else had gone unnoticed the night before. As my family and all the neighboring families spread out and took stock of the actual damage done, a crowd began to build where the Murphys and Niedermans' homes once stood. The initial gatherers were people from neighboring communities who lived close enough to have witnessed the onslaught or had heard about the catastrophe. 
Nothing travels faster than bad news, and I even sense a sort of perverse joy at our misfortune from these people, long jealous of our living so close to the Murphys and Niedermans. Be that as it may, we were all too preoccupied with our own woes to have even the slightest interest in the troubles of those responsible. But soon the commotion was so great that we couldn't help but be distracted, for the time being, and wander over to see exactly what the growing clamor was all about. Being a kid, I was able to push, crawl, and elbow my way through the throng, get right up front, and see what everybody was gawking at. Or should I say, wasn't gawking at, because there was nothing there. Absolutely nothing. While speculation and theories abound, the only rational explanation is that the explosions and subsequent fires had been so intense that they had literally incinerated everything. Not only were the houses gone, the foundations themselves, concrete foundations, had been vaporized. And the remaining crater in the ground went far below the typical 6 to 10 foot basement depth. I kid you not, these holes appeared to have no bottom. Of course, there was an official investigation of the incident, and beyond the obvious conclusions about the reasons and motivations for the episode, it was determined that both the Murphys and the Niedermans had stockpiles of fireworks in secret sub-basements. So when the finales hit, the ensuing explosions and fire were powerful enough to reach these storage spaces and ignite each of the family surpluses. Yikes. Neither the Murphys nor the Niedermans were ever heard from again. The sensationalists in the neighborhood believed they, they, along with their worldly possessions, had been incinerated, literally turned to dust, and dispersed into the atmosphere along with the final salvos of each of their displays. While it's a romantic thought, it seems unlikely. Besides, there are some who claim they saw both families hastily slip away during the commotion before the fickle finger of blame was pointed squarely at the lot of them. Either way, no one ever saw or heard of any of the Murphys or the Niedermans again. I won't argue the fact that time takes its toll on memories. It does. Some of it wipes out completely, while others it alters, twists, and confuses. Still, others become exaggerated and overblown, ever-evolving and contorting with repeated telling. Looking back on that surreal event, while it all seems as clear to me as if it happened yesterday, I have to accept that the fact that a lot of years have passed and the mind does play tricks. But how do you explain the fact that every person who was there that night remembers the exact same thing? Mass exaggeration? I don't think so. Besides, that wouldn't explain the newspaper articles that still exist to this day. Go to the library and check for yourself. Or the two lots that still stand vacant. Well, not exactly vacant. There are two beautiful little parks where the houses once stood. Murphy and Niederman Park. And every 4th of July, the neighborhood gathers for its annual fireworks display on those very spots. I hear that this year, the theme is going to be the War of 1812. The End. Well, thanks for letting me share that with you. Um, I enjoyed reading it. It's the first time I ever read it aloud, uh, which is an interesting experiment, so to speak, if you write, to read it aloud and hear it aloud. But, uh, uh, you know, so much of that uh, comes from sweet, sweaty memories of my youth. And uh, I hope that right now, this weekend... Uh, you older listeners are helping to create those sweet, sweaty memories of your children's youth. And my younger listeners are having sweet, sweaty memories of their own. I'm sorely missing this celebration being here in Europe. Like I said, there is no acknowledgement or recognition uh, here in Bulgaria. I'm headed to Hungary today, to Budapest, 
And uh, they really could care less about our country's birth. They could care less. We're, we're babies. America is, uh, the United States is a baby country compared to the history that these countries have. We talk about 1776, and they talk about 1376. I mean, you know, it's, it's crazy, the history that goes on here. And while they have their own celebrations, you may have heard of Guy Fawkes Day in, uh, in England. That's, that's in November, I think, where they light up the sky with fireworks in celebration of some uh, lunatic trying to blow up Parliament. That's a reason to celebrate, huh? Um, uh, you know, no one, like I said, is celebrating the holiday today. So uh, reading this to you was my way of celebrating. So I'm out and about traveling the world. Trying to keep up with the uh, with the, with the weekly installments on this thing, uh, hoping to keep you interested. Uh, if you have any comments you'd like to share about the show, you can send them to uh, you. Well, you can tweet him to at Snyder Comments at Snyder with an I. Uh, you can email him to SnyderComments at gmail.com. And uh, like I did last week, I, I want to try and incorporate some of your uh, questions and thoughts and ideas. Uh, into the show because I'm not really locked into what this show is about. I just want it to be a conversation and I want it to be uh, things that, y- that you're interested in hearing about, things that I'm interested in talking about. And uh, it's going to range. You know, it's absolutely going to range. Um, uh, so, uh, look, it's uh, you know, a little short of my usual hour, but uh, I'm going to call it right here because I'm packing my bags and headed to the next city. I owe you five minutes, all right? So uh, have a great fourth, everybody. Great holiday weekend. Uh, As I said in the story, these are explosives. Friends of mine have lost hands. People have lost eyes. People have been burned. While the, uh, you know, while the the joy of of setting off fireworks is something that no one should be deprived of, uh, just uh, try not to get hurt out there, okay? Well, I want you to be able to tune in next week for the next episode. Have a great 4th of July, and I'll see you next time.